As you know, advertisers help support the production of this show, and every once in a while I have to ask you to take a quick survey that helps us find great advertisers that are a great fit for the show. So if you want to help, please go to podsurvey.com slash left and know that all of your answers will be anonymous. Again, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash left, and thanks for your help. And speaking of those advertisers that are a great fit for the show, today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your real credit card number. Instead, you create virtual credit card numbers, which are linked to your bank account, that you can use to shop anywhere. And just one of the many ways Privacy.com protects you against card theft is that each card is locked to a merchant, so you're totally protected against fraud and unauthorized use. You can find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com slash best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, which I see as part three in a series on Native peoples that I've been working on. I just didn't happen to mention to anyone that it was a series. So part one was Columbus Day episode from last year. That's number 1216, followed by part two, looking at the legacy of Thanksgiving. That was number 1230. And now we have part three, moving on chronologically to westward expansion, in which we shall learn about the process of systematic government-sponsored genocide against the native peoples that kicked off the process of building the American empire we know and love today. Clips today come from Propaganda, Backstory, Citations Needed, The Empire Files, The Dig, and Intercepted. So a few weeks ago, I was at an elementary school, and the school hallways were covered with upbeat posters and bright decorations. I spotted a colorful timeline posted to the wall. It's one of those simple, mass-produced paper things you can buy at any teaching store. So I looked closer. This was a timeline of American history, and it started in 1492 with the arrival of Christopher Columbus. There are a lot of problems with this narrative. There were millions and millions of people living on the land that's now the United States with complex, diverse societies that covered the North American continent long before any Europeans arrived. But still, the way we're taught U.S. history often begins with the arrival of a European colonist. Why do elementary school timelines still frame Columbus as a hero who set our country in motion and not, say, an imperialist with a poor understanding of geography who spearheaded the slave trade? Historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz takes a hard look at the mythical origin stories of the United States in her excellent book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. She was generous enough to take time to talk with me about our history and her work. Such a fundamental part of this book is about asking us to rethink the origin story that we think we know about the United States of America. And you point out that the whole idea that the United States um, is founded on sort of these these proud settlers pushing west and there being a back and forth between battles with indigenous people and there being a give and take there is really a myth. And what America is founded on is a word that we don't like to say very much, which is genocide. Can you talk about sort of how we how, how you think we should reshape the way that we see how America was was first founded and first made? Well, I think, you know, I think most um, 
fairly, uh, you know, progressive, educated um, people, especially a younger generation in the United States, understand of what colonialism, that Africa was colonized by the British and the French and the Dutch, and that Indonesia was colonized and decolonized, India was colonized by, and that, that, that North America was colonized by the British. But what, what they don't make the jump to, it's almost like a, it, it's never even posed as a possibility, is that the United States itself formed simply split from the from the British Empire and from and didn't miss a beat in pursuing then the building of a new empire. They even called it uh, Thomas Jefferson called it an empire for liberty. So they had no um, made no secrets about this. They didn't try to camouflage what they were doing and who they meant freedom for. They meant freedom, you know, a, a white republic. And then you get to the kind of, of colonialism the British set up and the Americans continued, and that's settler colonialism, where they want to replace the existing people, appropriate their farms, the native people's farms, and uh, simply take them and replace, get rid of them, fight them, kill them, burn their villages, uh, kill the women and children, kill everyone, or drive them out to the periphery. And this is a hundred-year process of taking the continent, one one area after another, and it's that is the narrative that people don't understand. And they, if they do, you know, learn about, and they have much in the last forty years or so, learn about the atrocities and the uh, the genocide. They think that's just some kind of evil behavior that should be um, punished, reparations, you know, this this sort of thing, but not understanding or not grasping that it's still going on. You know, it's not just history. There's still these people with, you know, land bases they fought for and won some that they're still barely hanging on as peoples, fighting to remain and exist as peoples, and not understanding that it's a whole systematic thing and we're all implicated in it, we're all complicit in it, as we're a part of it. And, of course, its economic form is capitalism, or else it wasn't just done for adventure. You know, it was it built the wealth of the wealthiest nation that had ever existed on earth. So Roxanne, you grew up in rural Oklahoma. Um, do you remember learning about United, United States history as a kid and learning the origin story of the United States then? Do you remember what stories you heard as a kid? And what was the first time when you started to think, I'm not getting the whole picture or the picture isn't right at all? Well, it's a good question. I learned... Um, Probably, you know, it was a different time. It was before the civil rights, well, before and, and at the beginning of the civil rights movement, which really, you know, changed a lot because I, I got involved. But in younger years, I had no <clears throat> no conception of anything beyond what we were told, you know, the same story and probably a little bit more 
fundamentalists since I, we were, you know, the whole community was also Baptist, Southern Baptist, so we had the evangelical part of it too, the mission, literally the mission to take the land and overcome barbarism and, and uh, savagery and tame it and, um, you know, that settlers were just the light of the earth. Now, we were um, landless farmers, you know, tenant farmers, sharecroppers, and migrant workers, so left out of the American dream. But that didn't mean it didn't exist, that my dad hated the rich, you know, the banks and the rich, the sort of simplistic uh, uh, kind of, you know, the Federal Reserve and the the Yankee power back east um, but I grew up with that consciousness of being working class and poor um, and being somewhat proud of it, that we were better than the rich. So I think the first time I had, none of this made me question the um, greatness of of the founding of the United States. That little core thing was never shaken by any of this, hating the rich or anything. It's just like... Things had gone wrong, you know, and there's some people who can be blamed for that. So it wasn't really until my first year of college at um, University of Oklahoma that I met um, my boyfriend was an engineering student, and his best friend was happened to be a Palestinian. So Saeed had a huge impact on explaining US history to me it I couldn't I couldn't absorb it all but he explained that you know the Indians all around us you know he was very he identified with the Indians he says they're like the Palestinians and and the history is 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 like Israel you know your your covenant constitution and he even though he was an engineering student he was raised in a, you know, it was only eight years from being, um, uh, his family being um, chased out of their home and never to return, you know, in uh, Java. So I heard all these stories and I began thinking, you know, it put a, a thought process in my mind that I've always been very grateful for because I can't think of any other way I would have gotten that so young you know that's why I emphasize this this core origin story that is so um, is so uh, impenetrable that you can learn all kinds of things and still not disturb it so in this book I really wanted to find how can I burst that bubble you know because I know I've done it for myself but it was over such a long period of time. So you point out in the book a couple concrete ways that this origin story is really embedded into the culture and the physical concrete culture of our society. And one of those ways is firsting and lasting is what it's called by the historian Gene O'Brien names it that firsting and lasting is the sort of the practice of plaques, local histories, monuments, signage to create an narrative that the first settlement in that space or to commemorate the first thing in that space is work of white people, work of white settlers that came in and built something there as if it's as if there weren't people there before. And then they commemorate the last 
when it comes to, to native things, they commemorate the last of the Indian tribes. Uh, you say the last of the Mohicans, Ishi, the last Indian. And right. that's, that's a really interesting thing to, that I think sort of wakes people up to mm-hmm. think like, oh, that I have seen those plaques. I have seen those memorials. You know, they kind of pop out where you've just sort of taken them for granted before, you know, or the names are unfamiliar, so you ignore it. And you, who is this person that's being commemorated? And you kind of look into it, and wonderful with, you know, with the Internet, you can find things pretty quickly on your on your iPhone, uh, you know, just to say right there, oh, my God. You just mentioned trying to sort of burst people's idea of what the origin story of the United States is. So I don't know if you've had this experience, but I'm curious is how do you talk about the history of the United States to kids, to people who are maybe learning their origin story, the country's origin story for the first time? Have you had to try and talk to kids about this? And when they're very first learning about the history of the United States, how do you tell that history? Well, I've had some pretty good feedback because, <clears throat> you know, I don't I don't just take, you know, little random kids and start telling them <laughs> that there's no Santa Claus or Easter Bunny. <laughs> that, you know, that has to be a process for them. But uh, teachers have really appreciated this book. You know, what it seems like to me, and I have this experience, and lots of times there are quite a few young people Really young people bring their classes to my talk, you know, their, their, uh, middle school classes. And I just say the same thing it was, uh, that I say because I'm not, you know, I'm not an elementary school teacher. So I, I'm not going to pretend that I know how to talk, uh, in, in that language or in, within that pedagogy. But it seems like everyone already knows this. You know, not not all the details or anything, because it's like a snap, and he says, aha, that's how it is. And it doesn't seem to have this effect, oh, my God, what have I lost now, my whole, you know, my whole dream, because people are pretty confused about why this country is so messed up, you know, why the book I'm writing now is on the Second Amendment and gun violence, you know. <laughs> why are all these strange things about the United States, so different from any other place, you know, that, um, and and so it seems to be a kind of relief, um, followed by, you know, people get back to me and they say, you know, that there's a lot, of, it raises all these questions, and what, what does that mean? I, I'm not supposed to like George Washington anymore, and, well, my answer would be, you know, forget about George Washington. We have a, you know, we have a nation to build. <laughs> we have one, one to dismantle and one to build. That's a lot of work, and we don't need George. You know, we don't need, we don't need all of that. Uh, that, you know, um, what has supported a ruling class in this country that's the most vicious in human history. But then I have a, you know, I have a responsibility not just to observe, but to do something about it. I recently spoke with historian Benjamin Madley. He says that as Americans arrived, they brought a new targeted violence against the California tribes. 
that violence was inflicted by the state and federal governments, as well as by everyday people. They all justified enslaving and killing Native peoples as the unavoidable consequence of American expansion. Once gold is discovered, the killing accelerates quite rapidly, particularly as an influx of prospectors and 49ers move south from Oregon. And these Oregonians just Hmm. saw them as a dangerous problem to get rid of, an obstacle between them and the gold. But the turning point is really in late 1849, early 1850. There were were these two white slaveholders living on the shores of Clear Lake named Stone and Kelsey. And they routinely raped California Indian women, tortured them to death, reportedly shot them to death for entertainment. And so the Pomo and Wapo people who were living under their rule rose up and killed the two of them. And so in response, vigilantes first murdered and massacred large numbers of California Indian ranch workers and farm workers in the Sonoma and Napa Valley. And then the United States Army launched two separate genocidal killing campaigns. And and why was that the turning point? That was the turning point because the initial vigilantes who killed large numbers of California Indian people in Napa and Sonoma counties became the subject of the very first case of the new California State Supreme Court, and all eight men were released on bail. So this communicated a strong message to the people of California about how the state legal system was going to respond to the mass murder of Indians. And that was by granting Indian killers a pass. So what did the government do other than sanction this, other than look the other way? California governors authorized 24, that's two dozen, separate state militia expeditions against California Indians between 1850 and 1861. And these expeditions killed at least 1,340 California Indian people. At the same time, the state raised three separate bills that raised over $1.5 million, a huge amount of money at this time in history, for Indian hunting militia operations. And so these state militia expeditions then inspired, I think, over 6,400 murders of California Indian people by vigilantes. And when I first began the research, I thought that the killers must have been some kind of rogue element. But state endorsement for this genocide was only very thinly veiled. In 1851, California's first governor, Peter Burnett, declared, and I quote, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. So making a race extinct is almost the exact definition of genocide, right? Yes, and between 1846 and 1873, California's indigenous population plunged from perhaps 150,000 people to just 30,000. So we know that diseases, dislocation, and starvation caused many of these tens of thousands of deaths. But the near annihilation of California's Indian population was not, as it is often described, the unavoidable result of two civilizations coming into contact for the first time. This was actually a case of genocide, sanctioned, paid for, and facilitated by state and federal officials. For example, in 1852, California's U.S. Senator John Weller, who later became the state's governor in 1858, he told his colleagues in the United States Senate that California Indians, and I quote, will be exterminated before the onward march of the white man. And he insisted that 
the interest of the white man demands their extinction. So this was not a crime that was hidden. Right. This was something that you could read about almost every week in every little newspaper up and down the state of California. So do the indigenous people fight back? They do, but it's difficult for them to do so, and I'll tell you why. So attackers frequently surrounded California Indian villages and opened fire at dawn or under moonlight when Indian people were asleep. Once most of the men had died trying to protect their village, the attackers closed in for the final exterminatory executions, which they carried out with sabers or bayonets or hatchets or simply with rocks or sometimes their bare hands. I'm assuming that women and children were also killed in these raids. They were often killed, but they had a value. So they tried generally not to kill them, but to sell them into slavery. So it's hard not to notice the irony of California entering the United States as a free state at the same time that it is deeply implicated in a different kind of slavery. Well, one thing to understand about California is that while it entered the Union as a free state, it had a very strong and vocal pro-unfree labor movement. So not only were there hundreds and perhaps even thousands of African-American chattel slaves brought into California by Southerners, by 1860, the state has passed a law that allows for the indenture of any Indian, and that could be a child, a woman, a prisoner of war— anybody. They've also put into effect a system of prisoner leasing. So, uh, for example, people could be arrested for public drunkenness if they were an Indian under California law. White people would then hire them as leased prisoners by paying the judge for a week of their labor. And then at the end of that week, they would give them hard alcohol. Then they would immediately be rearrested for public drunkenness and then leased out again, often to that very same person who had incriminated them by giving them the alcohol in the first place. Wow. So, as everyone knows, back in the East, people are arguing passionately about African-American slavery. Do people draw analogies from one way or the other to that trade and that uh, subjugation? Absolutely. One of the really interesting things that happens in California is that sometimes free soilers, the very people who are arguing for the abolition of slave labor, they seek to justify the massacre of California Indians as the erasure of California's pre-existing unfree labor economy under Mexican rule. <laughs> So let me get this straight. So they're actually engaging in this genocidal behavior because they want to erase slavery. That was sometimes the case. Yeah. Wow. Do you think the gold rush appreciably changed this history? Did it accelerate it? Did it give a rationale for all this killing? Or is this something that would have happened anyway? The gold rush was absolutely central to the genocide of California Indian people. It attracted the largest mass migration of the 19th century in the United States mm. to California. Before the gold rush, there were perhaps 13 or 14,000 non-Indian people in California. By 1860, that number exceeded 360,000 individuals. Wow. So there was a huge influx of manpower 
to carry out the actual killing. By the same token, the gold in California's natural environment provided a huge amount of money with which to carry out the killing. California politicians knew from the beginning that the federal government would reimburse them for the money they had expended on killing California Indian people because California's mining operations were providing so much money, a massive injection of capital to the national economy and to the federal treasury. Uh, my sense is this is not a central feature of the story of the gold rush. It, did I just miss those days of school? You did not miss anything. What has changed uh, very recently was that the governor of California, Jerry Brown, acknowledged that what happened in California was, in his words, an actual genocide. Does that have practical consequences? One of the big questions is, will state officials tender public apologies along the lines of the ones issued by Presidents Ronald Reagan and George Bush in the 1980s for the forcible relocation and imprisonment of some 120,000 Japanese Americans during the Second World War. Should state officials offer compensation along the lines of the more than $1.6 billion that Congress has now paid to these Japanese Americans and their heirs? Another question for the state and federal government uh, bureaucracy is whether or not they're going to change the names that commemorate and valorize some of the perpetrators of this genocide. And these investigations are going to be painful. We can't bring back the dead, but they're going to help all of us, both Native and non-Native, to make more accurate sense of our past and ourselves. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and you probably don't think about your socks all that often, but maybe that's because there's not that much to think about. Whereas I've been a convert to Bombas socks for a couple of years now, and I still appreciate each pair when I put them on. Just as you'd expect, they have lots of fancy features like super soft natural cotton, arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed, plus fun styling and colors to choose from, but the thing I think will put you over the top is their philanthropic mission. The founders learned long ago that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, so they built Bombas from the ground up to sell great socks to customers and give away great socks to those in need, one for one. To take advantage of our special offer, buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash best today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas dot com slash best. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about, about your new book called Internationalism, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine. Let's push some paper. Plug it. <laughs> well, luck, luckily, we've been we've been we've been talking a lot about it um, already. I, I, I mentioned I, I do an analysis, a comparative analysis of Vladimir Jabotinsky and and Andrew Jackson, and it, it, I, I was a little bit surprised by how similar they sound. Um, although I guess I shouldn't have been. It's, it's a really an analysis also of, of I provide a really long detailed analysis of, of BDS in there. So 
I, I try my best to answer the questions about, uh, you know, what about boycotting the United States or, um, you know, uh, singling out Israel and, and these sorts of tropes that we always hear. But mo- mostly I, I try to put the Palestine solidarity community of, of North America on the hook a little bit. Um, and, and I think people who are, who are engaged in Palestine solidarity activism are remarkably courageous. Um, they, they face down a lot of nonsense. You both know that, right? And anybody who has criticized Israel or, or more specifically criticized Zionism knows that it's a hard thing to do and that, that you have to develop a thick skin. And it's not always easy to develop a thick skin, right? Uh, and, and sometimes a thick skin doesn't stay thick. You know, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. And so I, Despite that, we can do better, right? We, we, you know, we, we need to imagine Palestine in a, a, a global context and think about colonization where we stand and where we work and, and where we think about. If we're thinking about colonization in Palestine, we ought to also think about colonization in North America and think about what our responsibilities to Native communities might be in turn. And so I raise those sorts of questions and, and try to proffer some advice and, and kind of explore possibilities for for making connections beyond just uh beyond just uh, the, the phraseology of solidarity that the trying to look at, at what it means to talk together to think together to work together and what it means really to to undertake the decolonization of of palestine you know in in relationship to a, a simultaneous effort to decolonize north america or to decolonize other parts of the globe that that are experiencing similar conditions so it's, it's a kind of a call for for people particularly working in the West to, to think about uh, working with, listening to, reading, uh, engaging in support of Native communities. And, and, and also, I, I also think about uh, what, what we can learn about Palestine by looking at, at Native histories, uh, the Native present, Native tactics of resistance, that sort of thing. What do you think the word decolonize means? I, there's a really, I like the sign I saw once at a protest that said, no to diversity, yes to decolonization, which I thought was an interesting way of framing it. Um, like, I, I guess you sort of did just define it, but like, I mean, in, in a broad sense, how would you how would you define the word decolonize? Like, a, a, from a individual basis, right? Uh, you know, Joe Blow sitting in his uh, in his house, like I'm, you know, whatever privileged white guy. Like, what? How does one decolonize their life? Is it maybe that's a bit solipsistic? But can you can you expand on that idea? Sure thing, sure thing. But you know, I'd I'd be like, okay, you know. Joe Blow. Let's, um, you can just call him Adam Johnson for the sake of this argument. I'm wearing I'm wearing a fake mustache. It's my it's my white guilty liberal friend um, Schmadam Johnson. You don't know him. He, he wants to be a good ally. No, I don't. Um, you know, I could ask Adam Johnson to to enlighten me. But if we're talking well, I'm, about, I'm, I'm not trying to moralize it. I guess I'm just curious what that means in a practical sense. Absolutely, no, no. It's it's a great question, um, and it's a good question because because it's it's one of those words that that has probably already reached uh, you know uh, buzzword status, right? Right. Like people be using it all the time. It's like it's like a slogan, and hegemony is a similar word. Like mm-hmm. hegemony has a particular theoretical origin and context, but now it just means like control or domination, right? right. But, but that's like guilty as charged. Number one, yeah. It has a, a, a particular historical meaning that, that I deploy and that uh, that I would hope others deploy as well, which means that 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 in an anti-colonial movement, uh, to, to move from anti-colonization, which is a, a physical articulation of opposition to the, the colonial present, 
Um, decolonization is also a psychic process and it's an emotional process. It's an, it's an educational process. In other words, what you are trying to do is excise all of the vestiges of colonial power from within you and from within your system, your systems of education, your political systems, your economic systems. And so decolonization is not, not simply physically removing the colonizer, right? Or militarily defeating the colonizer. Although those, those outcomes are certainly welcome, right? But, but it's also, a matter of deprogramming your 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 colonized mind, if if that makes any sense, right? Uh, that's why you hear the word like neo-colonization, where the native takes up or the native elite takes up the forms of oppression that the colonizer leaves behind. Decolonization gets rid of neo-colonialism. Also, it, it it dismantles the power of the local elites. It it puts power into the hands of the people who have just been ostensibly liberated. It changes the school curriculum. So instead of Indian school children, for example, studying a bunch of British authors, right? They, they, they study a curriculum that, that's based on South Asian authors, right? Uh, and their own historical texts. So that's kind of decolonization. It's, it's an entire project of, of, I don't like the word deprogramming. I mean, it sounds kind of robotic, but of, of sort of excising the, 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 the colonizer, not just physically, but excising the colonizer, uh, you know, uh, uh, psychically and emotionally and intellectually as well. One of the things that particularly horrified me from your book, Roxanne, was that headhunting, scalp hunting was not an underground business. It was actually a lucrative economy. Uh, talk more about this. They actually um, had a ordinance that uh, allowed for the um, for bounties to be paid for heads that were brought in. They brought this directly, this practice, the British practice, in uh, the colonization of Ireland, where they had started taking heads and then scalps or other body parts. It turned out. You know, the head was just, there were so many of them. Even in Ireland, they turned to scalps. Um, they would use the heads also to terrorize people, put them along the paths and everything to terrorize people and to surrender because they'd see their families' heads there. And they would hide the corpses so they couldn't even um, uh, get their family member back. So it was partly terror, but it was also... It became it became a commercial market, and so no one checked very closely if uh, it was supposed to be only when there were Indian uprisings or a war, but it became the practice after a few years. Just um, they could say, you know, these were warring Indians, but they could basically go in a village and just grab a bunch of children even or elderly people and take their scalps, kill them and sell them. Um, it was, you know, quite, quite a lucrative trade for people to, you know, especially poorer people to, to, um, make an income. And some people actually lived off of that income alone. You know, they were scalp hunters. So that spread, of course, with, um, everywhere, you know, throughout the, the colonies and then, you know, in, in, uh, the wars against the native people in east of the Mississippi, then west of the Mississippi, the scalp taking. So 
this is a commodity, the bodies themselves, but this this left corpses. You know, the descriptions I've read of the, the, uh, some people who were actually repelled by it wrote in their diaries and various things, uh, letters back to England, these, these uh, bloody bodies all over, because taking the scalp, of course, it causes blood to flow all over the body. They also often flayed the skin and used the skin of these people for various things. Uh, Jackson's army did that a lot. They used, uh, they made their rain, they were very proud of the horse reins were all made from Indian skins. So this, that kind of uh, fetishism continued uh, into the 20th century in Vietnam, <laughs> where people, soldiers were sending back all kinds of body parts to their relatives and all. So it's a you know it's just kind of built into the the military culture doing that because it was malicious but then those are the same people then who become parts of standing armies and so forth. Um so it was it was pretty much a a free enterprise all right of um uh of doing that but there was there was also the name they gave to the that what they would use uh, referring to this bloody corpse is the term redskin. And that's why it's so repugnant to, you know, the ball team that calls itself that. Um, it's not just any old misuse and appropriation of, of native names and symbols. It's, it's uh, ghoulish, you know, so it's, uh, but most people don't know the origin of the, you know, of, of, of the word red skin was a description of these bloody corpses whose heads have been cut off or their scalp taken. Wow. Um, and it's, you know, speaking of military culture, now you see native nomenclature embedded within the military establishment mm-hmm. from equipment to weapons to unit. What is the significance of this? Well, I call it a fetish, uh, you know, that it, it, um, uh, built into the army, which in the United States has uh, only rarely been used for any any purpose except uh, conquest. Even the Civil War, not to take the side of the Confederacy, but they pretty much used the same methods, you know, of um, scorched earth and food fight and so forth against the southern, I mean, they were fighting on southern territory. Uh, but only in World War One, World War Two, did you have late-coming Americans fight, uh, let's say, a, a standard what you think of as war, and that's why those wars are tooted so much, and others kind of put aside. There has to be some kind of um, uh, dehumanization involved. Uh, most recently, and it's not so recent anymore to people because you know those of us. Uh, who were adults uh, or students anyway in the 60s uh, saw these things happening on television. And those of us who knew this history said, this rings a bell, you know, and also their use of the term Indian country for enemy territory. Almost every generation has to have a regeneration through violence in order to justify its actions, you know, by doing it again. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Errett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter, with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under $25. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. A major part of your book is showing how the U.S., at least initially, methodically consolidated its hold on territory, on the territory under its possession, before pushing farther west into land controlled by indigenous people and by other powers. And that meant, before the onset of homesteading, curbing the ambitions of rogue settlers who tried to strike out on their own. And so I think this, a lot of people probably assume that it was just sort of the outright unleashing of of U.S. military might that that push the country west, but in in fact, what you show is that it was the careful advancement of settlers that was used to compensate for what was in reality a pretty weak central government at the time. And you have this this uh, quote from Jefferson that I think is evocative of this this philosophy or this strategy: "When we shall be full on this side, we may lay off a range of states on the western bank." from the head to the mouth, and so, range after range, advancing compactly as we multiply. Explain how the leaders of the early United States looked out across this continent that they wanted to conquer and what obstacles they they faced and, and, and the strategies that they developed to overcome them. Yeah, a, a terrific question. Um, and you're right. Uh, the Jefferson quote is 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 really evocative and and really powerfully situates uh, a lot of my argument. So when the leaders of the United States, the founders, um, looked out across the continent, um, they saw on their own side a very small military, um, uh, military that was not um, professionalized, um, and uh, they didn't see themselves as having uh, much military strength. What they saw as they looked beyond their borders um, were um, what they perceived to be, um, and this is guesswork, a uh, large part, but, uh, but they certainly perceived to be very large uh, indigenous um, militaries, uh, Native American populations, both in the south, um, such as the Cherokees and Creek, um, and in the north um, uh, as well, such as, uh, Miami and, um, uh, and Iroquois, um, that these had large large militaries far exceeding what the United States had. These militaries were also uh, buttressed by um, the looming empires, the British, the French, the Spanish, um, and so uh, who had alliances uh, with these Native American uh, nations. Um, and so the United States saw itself militarily as certainly not the hegemon on the, on the continent. Um, and it wouldn't see itself that way until 
you know, you can start to date maybe the 1830s. Um, uh, you could maybe go back to 1812, which is a pretty decisive war. Um, but um, uh, when but the U.S. defeats the British and their indigenous allies, and their indigenous allies, yes, that's right. So, um, so that's that's a lot of people see that as a turning point. Um, I would. I saw continued fears in the 1830s um, after um, Indian removal, um, where because Indian removal, um, on the one hand, um, you know, was it was an act of genocide. It was um, it was a military triumph of the United States in moving, um, you know, more than 100,000 people uh, from one side of the Mississippi to the other. On the other hand, it created a new um, militaristic problem in which that it put hundreds of thousands of Native Americans um, in tightly in tight quarters um, west of the Mississippi River. And uh, American statesmen um, feared that and feared that um, that they were not that not ready to, to face such a battle. Um, so that that's what they saw. Um, and they saw the possibility of, of using their their populations their settlers as a way of strengthening the territory. Now that had strengths and weaknesses. Um, first, the weaknesses is that if you let these settlers go on their own, um, they got in all sorts of trouble. They provoked wars um, because before they, the government was ready to fight them. Before the government was ready to fight them. That's right. Um, and so the, that's why the British banned uh, settlers moving west, because the British, uh, before the United States, um, feared that it was just creating uh, conflicts and potential for war that they weren't ready to fight. Uh, and that's how the United States felt. So they they banned uh, in a variety of ways uh, the movement of settlers. This didn't stop all settlers from moving, um, and some did. And places like Kentucky uh, um, flourished with the number of settlers that were going there, in part because there weren't a lot of Native Americans in that specific area at the time. Um, but so the United States tried to control this, this settler movement. And what it saw, and this was based on you know, many of the, of the uh, early leaders like Washington and Jefferson and Franklin uh, and Henry Knox, uh, having studied a lot of the, the Roman Empire, um, is the belief that you could use settlers, especially settlers who were also soldiers, sort of citizen citizen soldiers, um, to settle territories. And you do it by keeping them tightly packed um, and thus defending the territory as they moved along. along. But so once scattered they made themselves vulnerable and, and open to, to attack. Uh, but using them, um, to use Jefferson's words, advancing compactly as we multiply um, to c- keep those compact territories as you move forward uh, was that they saw a way of defending the territory they had and mobilizing for, for the next steps. I want to ask you about the development of Indian removal policies over time. The, the first stage, I think, culminates in the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which, as you mentioned earlier, is quite straightforwardly an act of genocide against those indigenous people who remained east of the Mississippi, and then reaches its end point with the incorporation of what remains of a much-reduced Indian territory as the state of Oklahoma. What are the early ideas about what should be done about the fact that people already lived in these vast territories that the U.S. wanted to seize, and how do those ideas change over time? that definitely changes over time. Um, and it changes, um, in pretty direct relationship with how strong the United States is and how, uh, strong or weak they perceived, um, uh, Native American nations to be. Um, and so in the early decades of the United States, um, they actually, it was a lot of deal making, um, buying land from 
Native Americans often uh, restricting their own populations, um, uh, being respectful, um, not, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but, but showing some respect uh, to Native American nations. And then, you know, um, um, obviously there, there, was, there was conflict within that. Um, but as the United States gets stronger, it gets, uh, you know, it, it gets more confident in itself and it, it starts to, to attempt bolder moves. Uh, Indian removal of, of the 1830s is an example of that. And Indian removal at that time was both a, a bold and, a, as you say, and as I said, uh, you know, it's a clear example of genocide. Um, it was also, in some ways, um, it really taxed the, the American nation at the time. It was not seen as a successful, and I, I'm using air quotes, uh, uh, you know, to use uh, for such awful, you know, uh, language uh, uh, dealing with genocide. But the United States did not see it as a successful movement because many people did die, which they had hoped not to occur. Uh, it was very unpopular in the United States. Um, it, it divided the nation, um, and you know, it arguably led to uh, a change in uh, presidential po power. And, and you know, it was it was a really a lot of congressional uh, testimony. I mean, it was in, in some ways similar to you know uh, issues with Iraq and with Abu Ghraib and places like that it had the same kind of of real controversy, um, and it, so it really taxed the nation. Um, moving decades further, um, you know, in, in all the way up to, to the end of the century into places like Oklahoma, um, the United States felt it had the much strong, stronger hand, uh, and it kind of and it bullied its way forward. Uh, it stopped signing uh, treaties and stopped buying land from Native Americans uh, with the Civil War, um, and uh, it played the role of a bully um, uh, in that period after. Uh, and, it was, and it was it was much more violent in many ways. I mean, it was certainly violent pre-Civil War, uh, but starting with President Lincoln really becomes a much more violent affair uh, throughout to the end of the century. By the time then you get to Oklahoma, um, Oklahoma is you know, the Native American territory, as you said, has shrunk uh, dramatically. Um, the population had shrunk dramatically. Uh, its its uh, power uh, uh, had shrunk dramatically. And there you get this wave of using uh, homesteading uh, where the United States sends in over a million people, uh, a million settlers into um, Oklahoma, land that becomes Oklahoma uh, really in about 10, you know, 15 years. So uh, it's just, again, it's, it's sort of a final step of this uh, advancing compactly as we multiply. Now we're multiplied. Uh, and we just overwhelm the, the remaining uh, Indian territory uh, with, you know, literally more than a million people. How do the ideologies underpinning those policies change under time? Because it seems like in the period of Indian removal in 1830, that it's straightforwardly, they can't be on our land. This land is ours. But by the time of the Dawes Act in the late 19th century, there's all of this talk about in indigenous people needing to be civilized by having their land broken up into individual allotments and and breaking down tribal tribal gov governance and and awarding people individual citizenship right yeah i mean there's a mix of both uh throughout this period the idea of civilizing or the, you know the idea of doing doing terrible, arguably genocidal things on behalf of the good of those people. Um, you know, it's kind of an American tradition. We've done this a lot, <laughs> and, and you continue to hear such language. Today, we did this in Iraq, right? We went there to help, build, help their people uh, free themselves and build a nation. Um, Paul so, Wolfowitz is a very generous man. <laughs> so, uh, so the ideas were there with, um, you know, with Native Americans 
in the 1820s. The tough thing with, with Indian removal, the specific moment of Indian removal, is that the Cherokees seemingly had done what we wanted them to do, which was to you know, write a constitution and seemingly you know, and, and, and cultivate their land and do all the things that we, uh, were, we I'm using for the United States, uh, were arguing that Native Americans were not doing, um, and yet we still moved them. So that showed the, you know, just the bald-faced you know, uh, reality of what was at hand, which was just that the United States wanted their land. Um, the Dawes Act uh, was inspired uh, you know, by Daw- uh, Senator Dawes, did have a real ideology, I think a sincere ideology that, um, again, going back to John Locke, that people needed to cultivate land to be good uh, human beings and citizens. And so he thought that there was too much land for um, the Native Americans who lived on, on Indian territory, and they would be better served by these allotments, giving them 160 acres of land, um, which is what we gave to settlers as well um, via the Homestead Act. So, um, you know, to, to further, to encourage their, their you know, move towards citizenship. Now, at the same time, most of the motivation um, for uh, the Dawes Act and for the uh, taking of Oklahoma was was not about civilizing Native Americans. It was about gaining this land first for railroads and for um, you know lots of of, uh, of business uh, interests, uh, and then also for these these settlers to move these people in. So, you know, the ideas are out there. I don't want to discard them and say they're disingenuous. I think there are people who meaningfully believe these ideas. Um, but at the same time, there's always a uh, arguably much bigger crowd uh, that just sees this as land taking uh, and has no real interest uh, in, in Native American um, interests uh, or you know concerns. So there's a lot of protest uh, at the time of Oklahoma uh, from Native Americans who live there. Um, they go to Congress and they they speak quite eloquently um, on behalf of of keeping their land, and no one really seems to be to, to care. So, um, and that includes people like Dawes, who just thought they were misguided. The way that you talk about the language that's used in official American history to talk about war, American wars. I, I, th- I think it'd be interesting to kind of give some examples of how various U.S. wars have been described and talked about and sort of what is drilled into the heads of, of kids in this country when it comes to war. The language of war is ubiquitous, right? We've had wars on drugs, wars on poverty, wars on crime, cold war that lasted for 40 years, a war on terror that now we're told is going to last for another 40 years. You know, so the language of war is ubiquitous. But on the other hand, the United States hasn't declared a war anywhere in the world, really, like formally since World War II. So there have been police actions, there have been various kinds of military authorizations. Global contingency operations right, was Obama's right. favorite term. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So these sort of euphemisms for something that is not war, even though the popular discourse is all about war. And then sort of think about the kind of earlier history, a continuous history of fighting Indian wars that were not understood or recognized as wars. They were really, again, seen as contingency operations. They were seen as as the operations of kind of quasi-authorized settlers. You know, they were clearing operations. They were really kind of an ongoing counterinsurgency project. Well, and one of the right. most murderous ethnic cleansing campaigns. That is what happened here. That they, is what happened yeah. here. People from elsewhere 
got off their boats onto the shores and almost instantly started a mass extermination ethnic cleansing campaign of anyone that wasn't a European quote-unquote settler. Exactly, exactly. In the context of at least initially having to confront indigenous people as a, as a real counterforce, having temporary agreements that were then constantly broken. And once the balance of forces shifted, any acts of violence by Indians in defense of their land or in defense of their, their kind of customary rights was increasingly described as crime. So you have the kind of translation of sort of a language of co-equal combatants who have certain kinds of rights into a kind of asymmetrical language in which one party has the right of war and the other party is essentially... Um, seen as the party of a sort of asocial violence that needs to be disciplined, exterminated, sequestered, what have you. And so there's a reason, you know, why that history becomes so prominent again in the, in the war on terror, because it's almost the same kind of language. So in a strange kind of way, we, we've inflated the language of war, and then we've sort of hidden the idea that war is our modus operandi in the world. We've just heard clips today, starting with Propaganda, speaking with historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz about opening up to an alternate history of the United States. Backstory discussed the systematic nature of the genocide campaign against Native people in the U.S. Citations needed during a discussion primarily focused on Israel and BDS drew the connection between the moral narratives of colonization of Palestine and the Native Americans. The Empire Files also spoke with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz about some of the more horrifying aspects of anti-Native policy. The Dig broke down some of the nuts-and-bolts plans and policies of Western expansion. And finally, we just heard Intercepted discussing the ubiquitous language of war in the U.S. that stretches back to the Indian Wars. Members will be getting a bonus episode with an extended version of these discussions, tying in many of the concepts we heard today and making more connections to modern-day politics. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level. If that's too steep for you, consider getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon at no financials and involved and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all of the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, my name is TJ, and I, I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. I just wanted to call in about the episode with regards to the teacher strikes in LA and I'm glad to heard all the details about the show and there were some great clips in that. I did want to touch more on um, another aspect of the charter school systems and I understand that you know here in Arizona it's slightly different but um, I can't imagine it's much different in California but my point is with charter schools often a real big cost saving method is to outsource certain parts of the work. Uh, one is special education. Here in the state of Arizona, many, many, many charter schools don't have in-house speech therapy services 
or occupational therapy or special education, anything like that. They usually go and they usually have to reach out to the services of a contract company. And this is where I come in. I'm a speech-language therapy assistant, and I've been at my current job in a, in a charter district for about four years. And something that was really depressing was I plugged in, or I got my W-2, and I plugged in to Wolfram Alpha how much I would make if I was paid minimum wage, if I just worked a 40-hour-a-week minimum wage job. Minimum wage as of uh, January 1st, 2019 in Arizona is $11 an hour. I would have made $1,000 more working 40 hours a week at $11 an hour than I do currently as a speech therapy assistant serving special needs children at a charter school. I don't get vacation. I don't get holiday pay. I don't get um, summer, summer pay. I don't get any of this. I'm calling on President's Day right now. I'm not getting a paid day off. And I have two bachelor's degrees and $60,000 in student debt. And it's just, this is the spot I'm in. And because I'm contracted, I don't have a union option. I just don't. And I think that it's just another cog in this or another broken cog in the system that needs to be addressed and I hope that uh, it would be worth hearing my take on this. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Hey Jay, uh, this is Connor from Worcester, Massachusetts. Just wanted to call in and say that I, I did enjoy the show that you had just I just listened to the uh, Warren versus Harris candidate spotlight. I will say I don't know if this was um, your intention. It did kind of sound like an ad for the Warren campaign. Uh, of course, you have every right to express your opinion through your platform, but I don't know if um, maybe breaking out to doing like maybe shorter but individual spotlights on candidates would would solve that problem if that's a problem that that you see um if it's not a problem then it's not a problem um i think the head-to-head format is interesting but it does come off um you know if there's one versus one it does come off as there's going to be a winner and a loser usually not always i guess um and i would encourage you to continue experimenting with the format because i think that um you know a lot of people will benefit from listening to a bunch of aggregated clips about each of the candidates but Anyways, um, you would ask for thoughts on this type of episode, and I just thought I'd call in and let you know. Thank you very much. You, you do a great show, um, and keep being awesome. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So we just heard from Connor asking about the, uh, the previous Candidate Spotlight episode. And although his was the only voicemail on the topic, it wasn't the only comment. And I would say that his question was broadly representative of the type of question I received about that episode. And the the questions span the range anywhere from, hey, Jay, what's up with 
the lack of balance in that episode seemed like it was really pro-Warren and really anti-Harris. To the other end of the spectrum, which was, hey, Jay, what's up with the total lack of balance in that episode? Why was it so pro-Warren and so anti-Harris? So basically, regardless of where people are coming from, the people want to know what happened with that episode. How did it come to be? How was it made? Some people maybe agree with the conclusions. Other people obviously disagree with the conclusions. But everyone wants to know, were those clips representative of the general progressive media sphere and I was just sort of unbiasedly compiling them? Or was I really cherry picking and focusing on only getting positive clips for Elizabeth Warren and negative clips for Kamala Harris. Very fair question. I would have asked the same question myself if I had just been a listener and and heard that. Even if I had agreed with the clips, I would have wondered how that came to be. So just to uh, respond directly, the, the person who commented on Twitter was clearly the most not happy about how it went. And this person writes, at uh, go ACC, writes, Best of the left, what's with the political hit job you did on your candidate spotlight episode? Nothing but negative stories on Kamala Harris and positive ones on Elizabeth Warren. How is that progressive and fair? So just to nitpick for a second, this is not my main point, but just to nitpick for a second, progressive and fair, they're not the same thing, and, and I'm not even aiming to be both of them. The show has a progressive mindset. Uh, we, we express progressive opinions. We source our material from progressive shows. So to be fair sort of implies that I would create a sense of fairness and, and go out of my way to find positive comments on everyone or negative comments on everyone. And that is not how things are necessarily going to shake out. Uh, so what I responded, this is the very simplified version of the truth, is that the content you heard on the show is the content I found. And that's true. I, I didn't go out of my way to search for all positive or all negative uh, or vice versa. I, you know, I, I didn't I didn't go searching for anything in particular. And the uh, comment I got in response I think it was very legitimate given the perspective of someone who doesn't know how the show is made, which is everyone. So I don't blame him for having this idea of how the show is probably made when he says, no, that's the content you went looking for. That's so disingenuous. Harris did Matto as well. If you're going to be biased, don't analyze the candidates. I'll make sure not to listen to those episodes. So that is not an accurate description of how the show gets made. But I don't blame him because he doesn't have any other information to go on. And the result really seemed like I must have been going out of my way to be biased. Uh, so here's how the sausage gets made. That episode, first of all, I didn't even set out to do an episode on Warren and Harris. I set out to do an episode on the Democratic candidates more broadly. So we have a, a master source list. It's more than 150 sources strong. It ranges from moderate progressive, like not moderate, but moderate progressive all the way to extremely progressive. That, that's like our window that we focus on. More than 150 sources. We search through all of them, trying to find content for the given topic. And what we found really was pretty representatively displayed by that episode. What we found was 
a huge amount of support and adoration for Elizabeth Warren's progressive stances. And to be honest, I was surprised that there weren't even any negative comments that I could find. If you don't count the DNA test, like fiasco nonsense that has already been addressed on this show, just talking about policies, I couldn't find any negative policy uh, discussions on Elizabeth Warren. And I was surprised that Kamala Harris's clips, you know, content about her was so negative. I didn't know that there was as much negative stuff about her as I found. And because I know she's a popular candidate and people are excited about her, I thought I would find more positive commentary. And I just didn't. So the way I think it works is that progressive media highlights aberrations from the norm. So Elizabeth Warren, the focus she gets is her aberrations from the norm that are more progressive than sort of the status quo, the norm. Kamala Harris's aberrations, there aren't a lot of places where she's more progressive than a normal, standard progressive candidate. So the focus from progressive media on her is all the places where she falls short. So given the range of sources that I focus on, that's what came out. And so as I said, I set out to make a show on all the Democratic candidates, but when I heard all the content together, the Warren and the Harris content really stuck out to me. They were aberrations. They they were, you know, really stark contrast that I was frankly surprised was as stark as it, as it turned out to be. And that is actually what made me decide to focus on the two of them because they're both front runners, essentially. And I was surprised that they were as far apart as they were in the commentary I was hearing from progressive media. And so I thought that contrast needed to be put on display. So that's how the show got made. But the very legitimate criticism from uh, GoACC on Twitter is that Harris was on the Rachel Maddow show. I used a clip from the Rachel Maddow show, letting Elizabeth Warren speak for herself. Obviously, Kamala Harris spoke for herself in the positive. So you know, what, why could I not have found even one positive clip on her? Totally legitimate uh, criticism. And I'm not making an excuse. I actually did fail to find that clip. I failed to consider it for the show because I didn't hear it before the show was made. And uh, I'm not making an excuse. I just, I didn't do as good of a job as I wish I had. But as I like to do, I like to uh, distinguish between excuses and explanations. And so I will explain that it is normal for me to not get through every bit of source material on a given topic before I make a show, because there's just more than I can actually uh, listen to in a given week. And so, you know, we, we probably got through 95% of it. And it just so happened unintentionally that that episode of Rachel Maddow featuring Kamala Harris was in that 5% that just, I didn't get to it. I didn't have time and I didn't, I didn't like put it at the bottom of the list because if I didn't get to it, I, I didn't care. There was no thought behind it. It's just, I listened to everything I could, whatever I couldn't listen to didn't get listened to. And there was no ulterior motive behind that. And so just to explain further, though not to excuse you may recall that I ran a rerun episode last week, and that's because my week was so busy. I mentioned briefly on the rerun episode that we had doctor's appointments to go to. 
I won't go into detail, but longtime listeners will actually know that uh, Amanda has a chronic illness that we were dealing with. So we were going to doctor's appointments, getting scans done, getting the results of the scans, making plans for a you know, treatment plan going into the future. So to put it lightly, we had other things on our mind. And so the fact that I, I didn't get through all the source material didn't phase me at all because that's normal. And it didn't occur to me that it was going to end up biasing the show because I thought, look, we, we listened to 95% of what there was. I'm sure I got a representative sample. And it turns out, oops, no, not quite. I, I could have done a slightly better job. So to help correct this just a little bit, I did go back. I listened to the Harris on Matto episode. And here's the clip that I would have pulled had I heard it featuring the genuinely progressive stance that I very much appreciate about Harris, her opposition to the death penalty. You have put your past experience in law enforcement as the attorney general in California and as a prosecutor, as the DA in yeah. San Francisco, the elected DA. I remember that election. I remember mm -hmm. being amazed to see you from come outside, come outside from the two establishment candidates and right. beat them both. And it was a it was a political marvel to see you win that race. I remember watching it from up close. But I also know that you have faced you've been buffeted by tough controversies in both of yeah. those jobs. When right. you were the DA in San Francisco, there was a lab tech who was systematically messing with evidence. Oh, yes. And when and hundreds of convictions, hundreds of cases yeah. were dismissed because of that. That's right. When the judge in that lab tech case ruled on what happened, the judge said that people, prosecutors at the highest level of the DA's office, your office, mm -hmm. had to know that there were serious problems at the crime lab, that that lab tech was messing with evidence and that anything she touched essentially was screwing up cases. Mm -hmm. How did that happen mm -hmm. under your leadership without you knowing about it? So the crime lab was run by the San Francisco Police Department, not by my office. It was run by the police department. There was a technician, to your point, who worked in that crime lab who was basically sniffing what she should have been measuring. Hmm. And it turned out that hundreds of cases she had handled. And because of the because of her misconduct, I was going to say her taint, but because of what what we knew that she did, which was manipulate evidence. You're right. We dismissed those cases. Hundreds it was the right, yes, yeah. hundreds of them, because it was the right thing to do. When, when somebody abuses their power, especially in law enforcement, there's going to have to be a consequence. But did prosecutors working under you know about the concerns about that lab? The prosecutors, the, which in is my what the judge alleged. Did not know about it, at least said they did not know about it. Mm. But the result and the consequence is that cases that prosecutors had worked on were dismissed. Rightly, and it was my responsibility to say those cases will be dismissed mm -hmm. because there has been an abuse in the system. And that gets to a wider point where we see abuses in the criminal justice system and in particular by law enforcement. We've got to make sure there's a system in place in this country for consequence and accountability. And at the very least. It's going to have to be about getting rid of those cases, but also reforming the system. And that's what we did after that in terms of making sure that there were steps in place so that at least as the cases came into the DA's office, that we would make sure that there was no taint or no manipulation before it came in. From another direction, another controversy from when you were DA was in 2004, police officer uh, Isaac Espinoza was killed. Yeah. yeah. And I know that um, you at the time were personally opposed to the death penalty. Are you I've still been my entire life? And I still am for very good reasons that I can expand well, upon for di full disclosure and asking you the question. I am inclined the same way myself. But as D.A., yep. you elected to not seek the death penalty for the person who killed Officer Espinoza. Right. And um, the person who 
killed the, killed the officer. And I don't, we don't need to publicize that person because the officer should be remembered, not him. That's exactly right. Um, did get a life sentence. Yeah. Was convicted. That's right. But when you're running for president now, obviously you know that you have faced questions about that every time you've run for office yes, since then. I have. That will put the death penalty on the table as an issue of national debate. The president is an enthusiastic proponent of the death penalty with no qualms whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You versus Donald Trump on the death penalty would make that a central debate for the country. Would that be constructive or not? I think it is a debate that we should have. I believe that the death penalty is, is, is extremely flawed as a system. I have always been opposed to the death penalty. Um, back to the point of that case, mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you that there were Democrats that said the case should be taken away from me. What high level elected Democrats who said the case should be taken away from me because I would not seek the death penalty. But I did what I believed was the right thing to do, and the killer of that officer will will be in jail for the re- prison for the rest of his life. On the issue of a national debate, absolutely. Listen, we are talking about a system that creates a final punishment without any requirement that there be DNA to prove it. If there's DNA, it may prove it, but you don't need DNA. It is a system where it has been fundamentally proven to be applied to African-American and Latino men and poor men disproportionately for the same kind of crime. It is a process where if you want to talk about deterrence, listen, I have personally prosecuted homicide cases. I specialized for a long time in child sexual assault cases. I have dealt with all kinds of cases that, you know, are not for, for a PG show. I don't mm-hmm. know if your show is PG, by the way. <laughs> but, but let me say this. Nobody ever stood there and was about to pull the trigger and then decided, hmm, is this going to be life without possibility of parole or the death penalty before they decide to pull the trigger? So the idea that it is a deterrent is also not a strong argument for having in place a system that is fundamentally flawed. So, yes, I am personally opposed to the death penalty. I absolutely believe there should be severe and serious consequence for violent crime, which is why I've prosecuted those cases and will always seek the highest sentence consistent with the facts of the case. But the death penalty is flawed. And I welcome that debate if it's necessary. So I'm happy that I've been able to clarify that. I absolutely knew that the the show was massively slanted as as I said I didn't even set out to focus on those two women but they they stood out to me because first of all both of them are really popular they're both sort of leading in, in the polls and the responses to them were so different that I thought wow like this is a comparison that needs to be made because from the progressive mindset it's not even close. So, so as I said, I, I'm not going to set out to be fair or balanced or anything like that. I, I'm going to be honest. I want to present facts. And from the progressive mindset that this show represents, there's really no question, at least between these two candidates, uh, who I think a, a progressive minded person should be more interested in supporting for policy reasons as described in that episode. I was as surprised as anyone that the results were as biased as they were. And it's completely understandable that anyone would hear that and think, wow, Jay's really, uh, he's, he's laying it on thick for Warren and he's sticking in the knife and twisting it on Harris. And it just so happens that wasn't me. That was just the commentary that's out there, believe it or not. It so happens I agree with that commentary and so was happy to present it. But yeah, that, that wasn't me massively putting my thumb on the scale. 
So with that, as always, I'd love to, if you get the comments coming in, if you have responses to this or anything else, always love to hear it. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.